0: So A friend of mine and I were recently speculating about what would happen if uh, Mayor Tannehill uh, created a brand new position in the Oxford city government that we think ought to be called the Director of Roundabout Education. (laughs) The job would involve all kinds of research, maybe some town hall meetings, intended not just for the citizens of Lafayette County, we're so beneficent we'll share the, the, the wisdom with people in surrounding counties as well, on how to properly navigate the complexities of the roundabouts in our city. But the problem we determined is this. I mean, who exactly is gonna take that job? Can you imagine the level of frustration someone has got to metabolize on a regular basis when they have to hear someone say over and over again, now how does this work? And you simply say to them, all you gotta do is yield to the left, just yield to the left, just yield to the left. Oh, and don't stop when you're in the middle of of the roundabout, right? It would fry your brain to try to do something like that. But I also think that as a minister, there are times, not always, where I have a measure of sympathy for the director of Roundabout Education. Because look, I'm at peace with the fact that it is my vocation to research Bible topics more than most lay people could, or even should for that matter. But I find that when there are certain objections that continue to come up, about the nature of the Bible, I get a little frustrated. And most of them deal with questions about the reliability of the Bible. The reliability of the Bible. Over the years, I have heard the following kinds of statements come from the mouths of skeptics often. Things like this. I mean, the Bible has been translated so many times. How do we have any idea what it really says? Or, How do we know this book wasn't assembled by a bunch of medieval monks or something? Or, come on, we are modern people. I mean, surely we're not still trying to live our lives by a group of letters from an outdated, superstitious people that were perfectly fine with fabricated and fantastical stories about miracles and people rising from the dead and such. And again, I'm assuming that you've heard similar, but when you, when you hear them over and over and over again, you begin to wonder, maybe the information is just unlearnable, like yielding to the left when you approach a roundabout. It's just not going to penetrate the minds of certain people. And just like that, oftentimes people's objections to the Bible's reliability, they just keep coming. But that's the reason why I chose the passage that I did this morning to try to root out this discussion In 2 Thessalonians, Paul has written a letter to a group of people trying to warn them that there are bad actors out there, bad actors who are peddling false versions of apostolic letters. Back in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, Paul says this, We ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word, or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has already come." Catch that phrase? A letter seeming to be from us, he says. Well, which is why he says at the very end of his letter in chapter four, verse 17, what Clay just read, he said, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It's the way I write. What's the point? Paul was concerned about the authenticity of what he was writing. He cared about its integrity so much so that he had established a method for verifying it by writing it in his own hand and not leaving it to his scribe to sign as was the custom. My question is, does that sound like some primitive ancient Near Eastern person who has a penchant for the mystical who's looking to pull the wool over his reader's eyes? No, it doesn't. It sounds like somebody who's concerned about the reliability of his record. And so should we. We should at least be equally concerned. And so what I want to do something this morning is off the normal thing that we do for Sunday mornings. If you've been coming to Christ Press for any amount of time, you know that it is our custom to simply march through sections of Scripture verse by verse and allow the text to speak for itself. And granted, my text this morning roots my message, but my points are extrapolated more from it. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to address the Bible's reliability in the hopes that as we read it, we can do so with more confidence. And I'm going to begin by recommending as strongly as I can a small little book by a pastor up in Louisville, Kentucky, by the name of Greg Gilbert. And it's called, Why Trust the Bible? And I'm drawing my comments this morning directly from that book in the hopes that you will go and get your own copy. It's that good. It's extremely well done. But Greg suggests that there are five big questions that have to be answered before you can establish what we might call a reasonable certainty about the Bible's reliability. And I find it to be a great summary of the kinds of questions pastors get all the time about this. In other words, we want to look first of all at this question of translation. We want to ask a couple questions about transmission. We want to find out whether these books are the ones that we need to really have and whether the trust authors were trustworthy, and then finally, with they even being truthful. So when I tell you we're going to speed past this, buckle up. We're going to very quickly. Let's start with that first one, questions about translation. It's great to have the gullets here because one of my favorite little memories of our trip there that we took about a month and a half ago, I don't think we even told you all about this. But Ginger and I were walking through one of the markets in Rome as we were tra- traipsing around, and I saw a young Italian uh, teenager with a T-shirt on. And all it said on the T-shirt was, that's party. T-H-A-T apostrophe S party. And it was kind of fun because I really wanted to go up to him and be like, do you know what that says? Because it doesn't make any sense at all in English. It kind of reminded me of those uh, tattoo artists who come in there, they're supposed to put like a Chinese symbol on someone's arm because it's cool. And you tell the person that it means, you know, something exotic, like strong spirit or something when actually someone who really reads Chinese is like, no, it actually means empty head or something like that, right? The point is, we know how much confusion can result when people get translations wrong. How much more difficult they reason must it be to understand Greek and Hebrew, these ancient languages, especially since it's been translated and translated and translated. Well, look, This is, I think, a perfect time to clear up actually a very simple misunderstanding, and it's simply this. The Bible that you have open this morning in front of you, in a book or on device, whatever, has been translated once. One time. From the original language into English. That's the only time it's been translated What's being asked oftentimes when people post that objection, though, is what they're saying is, no, no, something that's that far ago, something that took place that way back, we, there's no way we can understand anything that they're talking about because of the distance between us and them. And I simply want to respond as, as honestly as I can, saying that just, that's just silly. I'm going to grant the Greek and Hebrew to, to English is a challenge for sure, But the skepticism that some people apply to the Bible (laughs) makes it feel a little bit like they're trying to avoid it rather than honestly engage in the questions in it. You know, for lots of people, it's an unsettling reality that they look and say, well, what about the fact that we have all these various translations or different versions of the Bible, right? You got the ESV, you got the KJV, you got the NSV, all these different things. And they get unnerved by that, but we shouldn't. Look, the translations are there, the different versions are there because language habits change. Meeting across time, words across time can oftentimes change slightly. So, if you want to know how people talked three, two, three hundred years ago, the King James Version is probably your best bet. We here at our church have opted for the English Standard Version as our sort of uh, version of practice. But what will happen is, is, if you take, and with modern technology, it's so easy to do. As you compare these different versions to to a particular passage, it'll help you find out just where the translation challenges really are. And I think what you're going to find out is what most people find out, and that is that a lot of these things are nowhere near as mysterious as you might think. Okay, so translation problems is the first category. Secondly, though, some people have what we might call transmission questions. This objection is fairly simply stated. How do we know... The, the, the people who made these letters, who wrote these things, copied it in such a way that they did it carefully without subtracting or adding things to it. Okay, so this is a good time to surface something that shouldn't, shouldn't be all that controversial. It's simply this. We don't have the originals. They're not in our possession, at least as we know, right? History has yet to unearth those if they exist at all. But what we do have is we have copies of those originals, and we actually have A lot of them, about 5,400 of them to be exact. And each of them contain original language text from some book of the Bible. Actually, all the books of the Bible. And you can actually go and look at these small, sometimes they're scrolls, papyrus scrolls. Sometimes they're just little uh, parchment fragments that we have. But you can see these things in the museums around the world. But what makes these copies so interesting is how old they are because these copies and these fragments will date oftentimes from the 3rd century AD some from the 2nd we even have a handful from the 1st century AD after Jesus was resurrected now look in the interest of, of full disclosure there are some differences in when you compare those different manuscripts Uh, Greg cites a well-known one from Matthew 27, verse 24, when you have Pilate at Jesus' trial. Remember when Pilate said this? I am innocent of this man's blood. That's the version that you have. But it turns out that we have a fragment that quotes the exact same verse, but it reads this way. I am innocent of this righteous blood. And there's still a third fragment that reads this way. I am innocent of this righteous man's blood. Now look, the reason why I think that example is helpful is because it demonstrates a few key facts about how people study these fragments. The first in point is this. Almost never do the variations in these texts come anywhere close (laughs) to obscuring what the story is saying in the first place. I mean, they don't come anywhere close. In all three of those examples, we know exactly what Pilate was trying to get across. And what you're going to find is the vast majority of those variations are equally innocuous like that. Second thing, though, it's not as if, though, these variations show up so randomly throughout the entire Bible. In truth, they tend to kind of cluster around the same places, which means that the actual number of debatable text is actually shockingly small. There's very few of them. And so what scholars have done, (laughs) now look, when I say meticulous, I mean meticulous work, is to compare and contrast these these, uh, various fragments time and time and time again, and trying to see where, and actually most importantly why, the copyists made the changes that they did. And again, what you're going to find is is there are places in the Bible that were harder than others. And again, I'm trying to be honest and give the full disclosure qualifier here. There are at least two places in the New Testament that are questionable. And most of your versions that you have will make a note of it. The first one is the long ending of Mark chapter 16. That's a struggle, that one. The other one is from John chapter 7 in Jesus' conversation with the woman caught in adultery. Almost all of your transversions will have a little section above saying that the earliest manuscripts do not contain these portions of Scripture. Now look, I'm admitting that so that you don't get something, (laughs) so your teenager doesn't come home and hit you upside the head with, oh, what about Mark 16? Yes, there are a couple of places that we struggle with, but you got to hear me. That is hardly a reason to say that, therefore, we have no idea what these original authors wrote, not anywhere close to it. So the question of transmission can be a sticky one, but honestly, it's been done, There's been a lot of work done to it. Let's go to a third question. What about these books? How do we know these books are the ones that were supposed to be here? And now I feel my deep kinship with the director of roundabout education again, because there was no more frustrating time to be a minister than the onslaught of the Da Vinci Code. This was not fun in the season when this thing was going viral in American life because if anyone ever wondered if we have the right set of books in the Bible or that maybe we lost some important ones along the way, it probably came from something in this book. It was cemented in people's minds what they probably always suspected. Let me quote from one character in the book, uh, T. Bing, right? The Bible as we know it today, he says, was collated by the pagan Roman emperor Constantine the Great. His idea, he goes on to say, is, is that there were some books that didn't agree with the Christian status quo. So the powers that be quashed those books in favor of the myth that they had been peddling all along so that they can keep the masses you know, stupid right, and keep them ignorant of the whole ruse. <sighs> okay, so the first problem with the Da Vinci Code is how it portrayed this idea that there were all these like free-floating gospels out there Uh, each with their own take on the life of Jesus. But but that's just not the case. Uh, There really aren't that many. And Interestingly enough, to every evidence that we have, the vast majority of Christianity immediately rejected them as inauthentic. They never made it into the church's life. Which, by the way, establishes a very important point. Because all the evidence that we have, and from actual verbal evidence from the writers of that time, shows that even though what we know as the full books of the Bible were not declared to be such until the fourth century, that is true, Christians widely recognized as authentic the vast majority of the books that we now know as the New Testament today. This is so important to remember, and this is really key. There was no one in these early church councils who thought that their task was to choose which books were and were not authentic. That's not how they articulated their task. What they said was, our job is to recognize the ones that already are authentic and have already been acknowledged to be such by the entirety of Christian uh, uh, thinking at the time. Now, that's not to say that they didn't have standards by which they evaluated which books were authentic and which ones were not. They had things like whether or not they were attested by an apostle whether how old they were was a big deal, Uh, whether or not they aligned with accepted orthodoxy of the time, or or even whether the church universal had held it to be such. All that became important criteria to get to the books that we have so that we can be satisfied that this is the collection. But here's the deal, and I got into this habit when I was in campus ministry all those years. It's like, if you're unsure about these lost gospels, Everybody gets upset about the Gospel of Thomas. Well, have you heard about the Gospel of Thomas? Why is it in the Bible? And my invitation is, go read it. It's on the interwebs. You can look at it all, read it to your heart's content. And what you will discover very quickly is that it is so bizarre and so outfield from what we normally see in Scripture that there is no way anyone would have accepted that as an authentic piece of Scripture with the rest of the Bible. Trust me, look into it yourself on that one. Okay, so that's what we deal with when we talk about whether we've got the right books. Number four, how do we know that the authors are being trustworthy? I think this is fascinating because it really takes a real cynic, a cynical person to understand this objection because it goes like this. Come on, Les. This stuff, these, the Bible is nothing more than a power play. These men needed for their fallen hero, Jesus, to be thought of as God because it really served them to be, for him to be so. That they wrote these accounts so that they could put themselves in positions of power in this new founded church. So honestly, how can we really trust them? You ever heard anything like that? Okay, so here's the question then. Does the New Testament read like the authors are trying to deceive people? <laughs> or does it sound like people who are playing fast and loose with the facts? Because if that's the case, why do you have, actually in numerous places, the authors of these books saying things like what the Apostle John says in 1 John 1, 1-3, when he says, "...that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands..." I don't know about you, but that seems like that's an awful lot of effort, a lot of ink being spilled, to establish the fact that these men believed that this really happened. Now, does that prove that it was true? No, but it does remove the suggestion that people often offer, which is like, well, you know, back in those days, uh, those people didn't care about historical accuracy. They felt much freer to just make stuff up. Well, then why would they go so far out of the way to insist upon its authenticity? It just doesn't hold water. Let's take another one. These guys were making claims about something that would have happened in their lifetime. So if they're just making this up, how do you account for the speed with which Christianity took off as a religion? This is, wrap your mind around this. Let's say for the sake of discussion, because it's the 2000s, that I'm going to start a cult. All the kids are doing it, and I want to start one myself. And I'm going to base it upon the teachings of someone who is here in... 1985. Okay, what, 35 years ago or so, 37 years ago? I'm going to base it on that person's teaching because they were here. Well, now, how is my cult going to get off the ground if there are still lots of people here in Lafayette County who were here in 1985 and very quickly are going to stand and be like, I don't know what that guy's saying, but none of that ever happened. My little movement would have trouble getting on the, on, off the ground, would it not? Well, you got to understand that the documents that we have were written well within the time where there were plenty of people in Palestine who could have raised their hand and been like, "Uh, I was in Jerusalem during that whole weekend. None of that stuff ever happened. Who's this Jesus character y'all are talking about? Actually, no one said anything like that. As a matter of fact, what happened was just the opposite. Christianity went viral in a comparatively short period of time. So much so that most scholars say that if there's a burden of proof out there to show that these men were making that stuff up, it's on the doubters. You have to demonstrate how Christianity got the traction that it did in the Holy Roman Empire if these things didn't really happen. I wish we had time to do a study on how foolish it would have been for these men to have made up stories that put themselves in such bad light. It's always fun to watch someone read through the New Testament for the first time, because they end up saying something to the effect of like, so what's the deal with the disciples? Did they get anything right? It's a horribly unflattering depiction of what the disciples said and did. And do you honestly think that Peter is going to include a story with, again, his fallen hero who he made up about being resurrected, Jesus, calling him Satan in Mark chapter 8? Remember that? Get behind me, Satan. You don't have your mind on the things of God. Would he really have included that if he was trying to secure for himself a seat of power in the new church? just wouldn't have happened. So yes, these authors are quite trustworthy. But the final question we have to ask is, yeah, but are they telling the truth? <laughs> are there any good reasons to think that what the New Testament writers wrote, that they actually happened? I mean, maybe they were just mistaken. Maybe they believed it was true, but what if they got it wrong? And most of the time, this objection centers around the existence of miracles. The reasoning goes this way. They say, look, since those days, scientific discoveries have shown us how the world really works. And we don't need the idea of miracles to sort of explain weird phenomenon because we know that miracles just don't happen. Okay, there's a whole lot to unpack on that that we don't have time to. But look, in statements like that, just a couple should suffice. First, it's fair to say that ancient Near Eastern people who believed that miracles did happen. Did they say that miracles only happened because they couldn't explain the science? Is that what you're suggesting that they did? Well, we had no idea what happened, so it must have been a miracle. And again, I'm not trying to be argumentative, but science still has yet to explain how a man can walk on water or how a man could be resurrected from the dead. And I realize that sounds strange, but my point is these people were offering supernatural explanations for what they saw. And what people rarely realize is you can't disprove the supernatural exists by saying science has disproven it. Granted, science may have proven that it's rare that those things happen, fine. But that's exactly what the biblical authors are saying. They're saying these things happen to us and we can't explain them. Saying that the science has explained it is just simply not going to do. Something equally important to remember, I think, is that when the, ma- when the miracles are recorded in the Bible, they're never recorded as magic tricks. I talked about this when we went through Luke a couple of years ago, how when Jesus started to do a miracle, he didn't get up and he's like, hey, everybody, watch this, stand back. You know, and then he flew around Palestine or something to do something cool. That's not what his miracles were there. His miracles were there to say something about his message. He healed the sick because he, because he wanted to heal their sins. He walked on water so that he could be the one who the psalmist said is mightier than the waves of the sea. He fed the 5,000 because he needed his people to go and feed the poor. His miracles had purpose. They weren't magic tricks to blow you away. But, of course, all those miracles pale in significance to the resurrection, right? Remember our study back in Acts last fall where these earliest sermons were just fixated on the resurrection. But have you ever thought about why that was the case? Well, it was the case because if the resurrection really happened, you have to take Christianity seriously. Because if it didn't, you actually should pity all of the weirdo Christians the most. Which, by the way, is Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians 15. But is that true? Think about a couple thoughts here. First of all, do you realize that 10% of everything that we have recorded that Jesus said is a quote from the Old Testament? Think about that for a second. If Jesus rose from the dead, you have to take his convictions as your own. And he thought the Old Testament was something that you could build your life upon. If Jesus rose from the dead, then he is the singular. He is singular in his knowledge of someone who died and who came back. You have to listen to him. It all hinges upon whatever he said because of his resurrection, which is the final question, right? So then why did these early people actually believe that a man rose from the dead? Oh, we could go for hours on this one, y'all. We could talk very easily about how unlikely it would have been to allow the very first witnesses to the resurrection to have been women. No offense, ladies, but your testimony was not even uh, admissible in a law court during Jesus' day. So if you're going to make up a story about a guy being resurrected, you would not have had women be the first one who reported that it happened. But that's exactly what the New Testament says, exactly the report. We could also talk about the lack of another plausible explanation. I mean, seriously, how do we account for this meteoric rise of Christianity in the short three centuries made up in order to conquer the Roman Empire? Again, how do you account for that if someone was just making it up? We could also talk about the consistency of the disciples' story and how that story held together even after Jesus' ascension into heaven and even in the midst of their being threatened to be killed for it. Come on, nobody dies for a hoax. Now You may be saying, "Well, I don't know, I know a lot of weirdos who believe crazy conspiracy theories. Okay, fine, but not 500 of them because that's how many people, the New Testament says, observe Jesus' resurrected body somewhere along the way, especially with the threat of death for believing in Christianity, somebody would have cracked. It would have spilled the beans on what really happened. But you know what? Never happened. Look how we could go on and on and on. But the reason for the exercise of going through this this morning is, yes, I really want you to pick up Greg Gilbert's book and read it, or maybe just have it for reference sake. But I also want you to realize how grave this is. Because what we're saying is, is that God in his good providence, by the operation of his Holy Spirit, has preserved for his people for generation after generation after generation, a mind-bendingly reliable historical document. It does not go too far, and many have said it before I'm saying it, that the Bible is the most reliable document in all of antiquity that we have. Like nothing comes close. The copies of Plato, the copies of of Homer, whatever else, don't come close to how well attested we have from Scripture. mean, they're not still questions? Of course they're still questions. But none of it gets away from this fundamental reasonable certainty that you and I can build our lives upon it. And if Jesus rose from the dead and he built his life on it, it means you and I got to do the same. It means that you and I have to invest some portion of our lives in the study of it. It means that there is some sense in which what it means for me to build a household is to be in regular consultation with the Bible in the raising and rearing of my children. That there's a burden upon us to look and say that there's a future generation that we want to pass on to. Because I promise you, the second that the attacks come, it'll start on the Bible. That's where it starts. And so with other generation, we have to at least be aware that when Paul is standing up and saying in 2 Thessalonians, look, I'm signing my name to this to make sure you know it's authentic, that he's looking at you and saying, and the Holy Spirit has preserved something just like it. It's reliable. Dig into it. See what you come up with. Let's pray. The Lord Jesus, we pray that you would guide us into that. Because we do, we get, we get confused, we get lost, and frankly, this is a lot of detail, and it was embarrassingly short time to spend doing it. But would you guide us into that and lead us into the truth of what your word is and show us the beauties that are contained in it, not just interior, the theology, the way it t- knits together, but also the way in which you've preserved it for 2,000 years, and why we're still standing up talking about it all these years later. Praise you for that. We lift our voices to you, Lord, hoping that you will take joy in what you hear. We pray it all in Jesus name. Amen.